I need to do like vocal warm ups or something. <laughs> what do they do? I can't even. Me, do me, it. me, 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 me. <laughs> a, B, C, D, E, F, G. No, that's not it. That's just the ABCs. Okay. <clears throat> Hello, everyone, and welcome to Reader's Digress. No, I forgot what our tagline was. <laughs> Where all the points are made up and the rules don't matter. <laughs> the podcast where we read nonfiction books so that you don't have to, unless you want to. I'm Kate Kiriakou. And I'm Molly Fox. And today we're going to talk about the book Daring Greatly by Brene Brown. Oh, should I, There's should I do this again very, since I just fucked it up? Very long subtitle to this. Yeah. So it's called Daring Greatly. And then the subtitle is How the Courage to be Vulnerable Transforms the Way We Live, Love, Parent, and Lead. I'm sorry, but that's too long too long of a subtitle on the instagram on the episode title it's gonna be called daring greatly yeah pick four words for the subtitle Brene. that's my rule everyone what what is it about like non-fiction books where people feel compelled to explain the book so thoroughly i'm very much a like vague metaphorical girl i would be just like the stick weeds figure it out from the book folks (laughs) (laughs) you'll get it when you read it yeah, high in the sky, <laughs> and that's the whole. Yeah, thing. I guess, I guess publishers are like, we're trying to sell it though, and I'm like, what? That's crazy. It's kind of like when you see everything in the trailer of a movie, and you're like, well, I feel like I just saw the movie. I don't need to go see the it. movie. Well, and Tale as Old as Time is the fact that they put the best jokes and moments in the trailer, and then you watch the movie and you're like, yeah, I literally all I needed was the trailer. I yeah. got it. Thanks. Yeah, mm. for sure. I'm excited to talk about this book and talk about courage and vulnerability and transforming oh, vulnerability. the way we live and love and parent and lead. I don't know. There's so many words. <laughs> I, I'm i excited also. The first half of the book, though, it's not an exaggeration to say that I cried on every page. Like, every <laughs> single page was making me cry. And I, I texted Kate about this while it was happening. And she, you, you didn't seem mystified, but I could tell you were, like, not being made to cry by the book the whole time and I was like I oh my god was not <laughs> but I was, just- I was not mystified because I knew you would so I was like <laughs> well checks out checks out <laughs> Uh, so I wept throughout the first half of the book and then <laughs> pulled it together um, that actually could just be like your summary of your life we could put that on your gravestone actually i wept throughout the first half of this book i wept throughout the first half and then i pulled it together (laughs) oh god that is embarrassingly accurate i love it sometimes they're happy tears guys it's okay yeah yeah Uh, there's nothing wrong with happy tears or sad i love the word wept because it's so it's such a a christian-y term there's there's like a verse in the bible that talks about like jesus wept 
And every time I say it, I think of this friend I used to have at one of the churches I went to in Ohio. And we were just like hanging out at her house this one time. And she was like, the, we were talking about the word weep or wept. And she's like, it's the most disgusting word. Every time a pastor says it, I'm just getting my skin crawls. I get so it. So now every time I say it, I'm like, <laughs> I'm saying it in this like very melodramatic way anyway. I wept. I <laughs> kind of so get that. Yeah. It is a, it's a terrible. It is kind of like ugh. a gross word. Yeah, it's very visceral. Like the way if you saw someone like sobbing in public, you would want to pull away. They'd be like, oh, yeah. God, what's happening? Like just everything on their face is wet. And it's just like, mm. I don't know yeah. where the wetness is coming from exactly on your face, but it looks bad. Yeah. It looks bad. It's a lot. <laughs> um, okay, well, shall we start with your summary? <laughs> Let's do it. So as Molly says, today we're talking about Daring Greatly, how the courage to be vulnerable transforms the way we live, love, parent, and lead by Brene Brown. You might know Brene Brown from one of her five other best-selling books, like The Gifts of Imperfection or her podcast, Unlocking Us and Dare to Lead. I actually didn't know she had two. I think I've only yeah. listened to an episode or two of Dare to Lead. Oh, I've only listened to Unlocking Us. Oh, interesting. Uh, she holds an LMSW and a PhD and is a research professor at the University of Houston. Daring Greatly begins with the premise that we're all impacted by what she terms scarcity culture, or a world where the fear of never enough dominates our behaviors and prevents us from having the courage to dare greatly in all facets of our lives. Scarcity culture breeds shame, comparison, and disengagement, preventing us from, as she puts it, living wholeheartedly. While wholeheartedness has many tenets, it boils down to living with openness and worthiness, facing uncertainty, exposure, and emotional risks, knowing that regardless, you are enough. I hope that our listeners have not started crying yet. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like all of those words are very emotionally triggering. Yeah, they are. (laughs) Uh, So in other words, she argues that without vulnerability, we lose the courage to engage and connect with others and take risks in our lives. This book covers the relationship between fear, shame, vulnerability, and worthiness through extensive sociological research. She unpacks how we shield ourselves from exposure and how to change our behaviors to embrace vulnerability rather than disengage from it in our families, communities, and workplaces. I think, I hope that I covered it all. Yeah. She is a sociological researcher, and so she is fond of lists. Uh, as most sociologists are, <laughs> where they'll make a point and they'll be like, here are the 17 ways that this manifests. <laughs> so I was going through yeah. it and trying to see if I could pick out all of the things that she names. And I was like, forget it. I'm just going to try and get all mm-hmm. the words in the summary in and we'll explain it later. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think those words mean enough to us that we can extrapolate ourselves, mm-hmm. you know. I feel like I always do my key takeaway first, so maybe you should do that today. Yeah, absolutely. So I had two key takeaways, but the one doesn't really need to be talked about too much, I don't think. So I will say both of them in succession. The first one is that vulnerability is good, actually. (laughs) Uh, I was definitely taught, and this was modeled for me growing up, that vulnerability is weakness and something that Mm -hmm. is not good, actually. And so as an adult, as someone who has come to reevaluate the beliefs that I was taught growing up, as we all do as adults... Mm -hmm. I have realized that vulnerability is good, actually. So that is my first takeaway. (laughs) And then the second one 
uh, is something that I, I kept thinking about throughout the book. Uh, it's not something that I'm sure she ever explicitly lays out, but it's something mm-hmm. that really has stuck with me, which mm-hmm. is that vulnerability is a part of a cycle And it isn't something Mm -hmm. that you do once or a few times at the Mm -hmm. beginning of a relationship with someone and then it's over. Um, But rather, it's a constant cycle of vulnerability, which breeds trust, which breeds Mm -hmm. more vulnerability, which breeds more trust, uh, Mm -hmm. and just really a deepening of that cycle and how important it is that those things are in tandem. Yeah. Yeah, that's really good. I I think that that I'll talk about this a little bit more when we go into mine, but there's this balance between needing to feel safe in order to be vulnerable, but having to be vulnerable in order to feel that safety and trust Mm -hmm. and connection with someone. And it's, I I don't think it's something that we in our society articulate very well. We talk about it in, you know, the dating scene and we talk about it in these various ways of this, like the struggle to build connections because they require vulnerability before there is certainty of safety. Mm-hmm. But I think she does such a good job of pulling that out in the book to, to say, yes, literally you must, you have to take the risk and that risk doesn't always pan out and that really hurts. And so that can create shame unless you build that resilience, which she talks about in the book. Also it's shame is just inevitable. And so you have to be resilient to it so that you can keep on being vulnerable without that certainty of safety. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the aspect of that in especially long-term relationships, partnerships, uh, family relationships, uh, friendships, that you have, it's important to continue that cycle because I think a lot of us have had the experience of having a really important relationship in your life and then someone does start to disengage or maybe there is a a bump in the road in terms of the trust and vulnerability relationship because it can be quite precarious. And then you realize that the only way over that hurdle is more vulnerability But after you've had a kind of trip up with the trust aspect, it can be very difficult to get back into that cycle of vulnerability once you feel like it's been violated in some way. Yeah. I think one of my main coping mechanisms is like, I always think of it as like silence. I refer to it as like dying quietly. (laughs) I I just like would, I prefer to retreat back into myself. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't mean that I'm not like social or introverted because that's not really what my personality is like. So I don't think people realize that that's what I do. But after I've been hurt significantly, I kind of just shut off that like aspect that's willing to be vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And which really limits the ability to get past the hurt Mm -hmm. because I don't even want to talk about the thing that hurt. Right. Like specifically with like really like family and long-term relationships, Mm -hmm. you know, I can like deal with conflict, but it's like those long tie relationships. Oh God, it's brutal. And I would rather just be like, no (laughs) to feeling that. (laughs) Like Turn it off. So I'm going to head out now. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. I agree. I think it becomes really difficult to do it after you feel like someone has not treated your vulnerability with the utmost care. And let's Mm -hmm. be honest, every relationship has that. We've all done that at some point or another 
Mm -hmm. hopefully not meaning to, but, um, you know, I think that that happens often. And whenever you're in a relationship for long enough, it's probably bound to happen. And so you really have to step back and motivate yourself almost to open back up after something like that has happened. Uh, and that's not advocating that everyone deserves your vulnerability because that is something she talks about in the book. Uh, and I really loved that being vulnerable is not oversharing. It is not, um, telling everything to everyone, uh, and being vulnerable at all times. <laughs> it's also not giving your vulnerability and your heart to people who have been shown to treat it not respectfully. And so when she talks about vulnerability, uh, it's something that should lead to trust and something that, um, you are doing in a relationship where you expect the response to be trust. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was really important too, that just because vulnerability is essential doesn't mean it is essential in every scenario Mm -hmm. or that it, it will, when you know that it will not give you the result that you're hoping for, which is like ultimately connection, then it's not appropriate to be vulnerable Mm -hmm. and, and sometimes you don't know and you just have to try, but there are, when you have enough evidence that this person is incapable of accepting my vulnerability mm-hmm. and therefore it does not deserve it any longer, then you get to decide not to do that with them anymore. Yeah. Yeah. She talks about a couple of times throughout the book that vulnerability is important and putting yourself out there is important, but it's also important mm-hmm. to be able to say, these are my boundaries and this is where I will stop putting myself out there for you. Um, because you've shown to not be very nice to me when I do that (laughs) or any number of other things. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was a really essential component to it because it's not just about, she talks about when people think about vulnerability, sometimes what they think is that you're just letting it all hang out, Mm -hmm. which is like the most disgusting phrase. I hate it, but that's what she, just imagine like, I I can't. No. (laughs) It's too disgusting. It's way more disgusting than wept. I will say that. Yeah, truly. Um, but it's the word she, the phrase she uses in the book. And it's true. I think a lot of times people who are really have that mindset of like vulnerability is bad. Think of it like being vulnerable is, is crying in public in front of strangers mm-hmm. or like doing these attention grabbing things on social media or, you know, whatever the thing is that mm-hmm. it's, And that isn't to say, like, I think there have been times when people have shared really vulnerable things on social media and it's been the right choice for them or maybe it's brought awareness to a thing that's really important. So I'm not suggesting that you should never do that. But people have this idea that vulnerability means oversharing or just being Mm -hmm. completely an open book and not keeping anything private, which is not the same thing. And I think she does a really good job of explaining how those things are different. Yeah, and how it's not only okay, but it is vitally important to your vulnerability that you choose the right audience and you choose Mm -hmm. the right time and place to disclose your vulnerability in order to continue feeling okay about being vulnerable. Because if we were all sharing everything to everyone all the time, I would imagine I wouldn't want to be vulnerable with anyone ever again, (laughs) because you would get a lot of really terrible responses. But I think culturally we have, I mean, we've cheapened many terms, but vulnerability I see a lot. For example, 
this last season of The Bachelor, they mm-hmm. were talking about vulnerability pretty much constantly. Every conversation was like two strangers sitting on a bench, just like vulnerability. And like <laughs> they said it all the time, but it's clear that these people have no idea what that term actually even means. Yeah. Um, but maybe I'll go into my key takeaway now since it yeah. kind of relates to what we were just talking about. Absolutely. So mine is as I feel like mine always are a little convoluted and I'm just going to talk for like five minutes. <laughs> it's never like, take us thing. on a journey, Molly. <laughs> oh, I will. Uh, so mine key takeaway was that there is a relationship between vulnerability and shame. And mm-hmm. when your vulnerability is well received by people, you get the connection that we all really crave But when it is not received, if you experience rejection or ridicule or whatever, that ultimately leads to shame. And there's nothing we can do about the fact that in life we are going to experience shame, especially if we continue to pursue connection, which we should because that's what makes life worth living. But in the book, Brene does a really good job of explaining that while we can't do anything about the fact that we're inevitably going to face shame, we can build resilience to it. And in that discussion, I I love the way she sets up the fact that vulnerability and shame have this very close relationship that we must maneuver through our attempts at being vulnerable and attempts to gain connection. So I I think the thing I took away from it was that there is a way to get better at experiencing shame. Mm-hmm. And yeah. the the way she put it that I found really helpful was that she talked about having specific values that we will seek out in life. So maybe a value that you have is bravery or compassion or romance. And if you find yourself in a situation where you chose to be vulnerable and it was not well received and you're experiencing shame and that shame is telling you that you are not worthy of connection, we can combat that with the truth that, no, I, yes, it didn't go the way I wanted it to, but I am still valuable because I lived out my values of bravery or Mm -hmm. compassion or kindness or whatever it was. And being able to reframe your experience of shame with the knowledge that, like, although that was very disappointing and painful, you are still valuable because you were true to yourself or or whatever, I found really helpful. Yeah, me too. I found that to be a really compelling way of thinking about it because it is a way of ensuring that even if your vulnerability isn't being received in the way that you want, or you don't get the outcome that you're seeking by sharing your vulnerability, that you're still getting something out of Mm -hmm. sharing that and taking that risk. And what you're getting is reinforcing the values that you've chosen to live your life by. And you're kind of like settling into that uncertainty Uh, in a way that still allows the experience to be valuable, even if, for example, you ask somebody out and they say no, right? But it's like, okay, but I still lived out my values by being courageous, by being romantic, Mm -hmm. by whatever it is. Yeah. Well, and that's kind of the reason it makes me think so much about The Bachelors last season, because I think what they were trying to do was guarantee the certainty that they wouldn't be hurt. Like, Mm -hmm. if, if we talk about being vulnerable and we get if we like decide 
what we're doing. <laughs> Please sign this NDA. Yeah, that like <laughs> to guarantee you will not hurt me. <laughs> it's it's it was like the performance of vulnerability in order to avoid the actual vulnerability of saying I could be hurt by you mm-hmm. in the process of trying to fall in love. Or yeah. maybe I'll fall in love with you and you won't fall in love with me. And that is vulnerable. And I find it interesting the way they were constantly trying to like talk about vulnerability while avoiding it altogether. <laughs> yeah. I think there's a whole chapter at the I think it's might be her first chapter in this book where mm-hmm. she starts out by talking about the myths of vulnerability and what vulnerability is not. And one of the things that she said vulnerability is not is oversharing mm-hmm. because that can actually be a way of avoiding true vulnerability by oversharing everything to the point that no one can truly engage with any one thing. Yeah, absolutely. I should we talk about like some of should we do some definitions right now so that people know? Yeah, I think that would be helpful. I so I, I pulled this isn't exactly a quote, but she has a list of things that came up in her research uh, while she is talking to people in her studies. And she talks about 12 shame categories mm-hmm. uh, that emerged through her research. So essentially the, the places people feel the most vulnerable mm-hmm. and the places in which people experience shame the most. Uh, so I can just read that list because it might be helpful for our conversation as we yeah. move into this. So on this list is appearance and body image, money and work, motherhood and fatherhood, family parenting, mental and physical health, addiction, sex, aging, religion, surviving trauma, and being stereotyped or labeled. So that's sort of the list of categories in which people feel the most shameful reactions, Mm -hmm. which when I read that, I was like, oh, yeah, of course. Those are the things that tend to be the most vulnerable to enter into. Like, as a woman of childbearing age Mm -hmm. that is not yet a mother the idea of becoming a mother is a really vulnerable topic for me yeah and so you know thinking through that and then reading it at one point she had said you don't have to be a mother or father to feel vulnerable about that topic Mm -hmm. and I was like yeah yeah that's true that's Mm -hmm. true that's how I feel yeah (laughs) and just you know whether or not to decide to be a parent and all of the things that that entails is a really vulnerable conversation to have. Yeah. Um, and that's why you shouldn't ask people Ugh. who you don't know to talk about that. <laughs> like, yeah. when are you going to be a parent? It's like, oh, I'm sorry. I don't think that's any of your business, well, actually. <laughs> maybe you really want to be and you can't. Or maybe you really want to be, but you are too concerned with the world burning or whatever. Right. Like, also many other things yeah there's there's, again like with any of these vulnerable topics there are just so many layers to it Mm -hmm. um but one other thing I wanted to bring up is that she did uh talk about shame um as an intensely painful experience Mm -hmm. uh neuroscientists have actually been able to pinpoint and confirm that emotions can cause pain Mm -hmm. um and She writes, just as we often struggle to define physical pain, describing emotional pain is difficult. Shame is particularly hard because it hates having words wrapped around it. It hates being spoken. Mm. Um, So, again, I think that's kind of an important part of it is that shame thrives 
in secrecy. Mm-hmm. And that when you feel shame about something and you keep it hidden and private, then it flourishes. And it just explodes inside of you and thrives on that. Yeah, absolutely. And and this wasn't a key takeaway in the sense of something I learned from the book, but something that occurred to me throughout the first half, which was the half that made me cry the most, as we've talked about. Um, I she's because in that half of the book she's talking a lot about the shame and the 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 feelings of disconnection and how that leads to suffering. Mm. And that really I resonate with that a lot because I have experienced a lot of loneliness and I know how much that leads to suffering. Even if you have like fulfilled other, even other parts of your life are very fulfilling. If you don't have a specific kind of connection that you really want or need, it is painful. Mm -hmm. And as I was reading the book, I kept having like a very intense emotional experience, which was kind of surprising to me because it was like, this is all stuff I already know. Like I've learned all Mm -hmm. of this stuff through therapy. And so I was surprised that it was hitting me as hard as it was, like as if this was the first time these things were occurring to me. And I realized that part of the experience I was having was trauma, not just shame or humiliation or embarrassment, which are all feelings she talks about. But I have had traumatic experiences around disconnection and feeling, you know, abandoned or alone. And those experiences lead me to feel a lot more intense emotion around this topic than I otherwise would. And once I realized that that was what was going on, I actually felt kind of relieved because I was like, okay, like it's, it's not that you haven't figured these things out and you haven't been practicing the things that she's talking about in this book. It's that like, no matter what, this is a heavier topic for you in the way that she is discussing it around like disconnection and loneliness because it like triggers a lot of pain. So yeah, yeah, I think that is something she treats pretty sensitively in the book, or at least I perceived it that way that uh, trauma and shame are often inextricably linked. Mm -hmm. And when you go to explore those feelings, you're not just exploring one, Mm -hmm. but then it triggers the other and vice versa. And so um, obviously if you're having a feeling of shame, alone it's Mm -hmm. a little bit easier to unpack or to pinpoint perhaps than having one alongside a traumatic uh reliving of an event or something like that yeah because something i i learned in therapy i did this special kind of therapy for a while called emdr which it's it's traumatic memory reprocessing and one of the things that that therapist explained to me was the way like if you have had a traumatic event around, say, rejection, all of the other rejections that you've experienced in your life are eventually linked together. So anytime you experience the feeling, it just triggers all of the other experiences of rejection. So part of what that therapy is about is like kind of unlinking those things so that you don't feel the weight of all of these experiences every time you experience rejection, which is something that we all experience many times. Like, yeah. And so yeah. being able to maneuver a, an experience of rejection without it hitting all of that other pain 
is one of the ways that you can move forward eventually and yeah actually that reminds me of she has a whole chapter on the vulnerability armory which is essentially the ways that we avoid vulnerability and the three that she focuses on uh, are foreboding joy which reminds me of what you just Mm -hmm. said Uh, she describes this as the paradoxical dread that clamps down on momentary joyfulness the second armor is perfectionism or believing that doing everything perfectly means you'll never feel shame and the third is numbing the embrace of whatever deadens the pain of discomfort uh, and pain Mm -hmm. and i think for the foreboding joy part of that Mm -hmm. uh our brains are so smart and they're so good at what they do (laughs) in that their job is to protect us and so our brains often will give us images of pain or loss or grief and say, well, wait, don't get too happy because this will end or things, bad things will come for you as a way of trying to prepare us for that eventual inevitability. Yeah. And it's kind of like what you're saying where when you are having this trigger Your mind is trying to use its past experiences to Mm -hmm. tell you how to react in this situation. Mm -hmm. And they're essentially saying like, hey, we've been here before, buddy. We know how to do this. We're going to do exactly (laughs) what we did last time. And the problem is (laughs) that reaction isn't always the best one. And just because you've done it before doesn't mean it's the appropriate or best reaction. But the foreboding joy part of that of like our minds just wanting to protect us so much Mm -hmm. that they're actually getting in their own way yeah is fascinating to me yeah i one of the ways i've heard it explained is you, often a lot of our traumas happen when we're kids it's pretty standard and we develop coping mechanisms as children that did keep us safe or were the best we could do at the time but they they're not applicable in adulthood and in our lives now and but we keep on using them because it's what our bodies learned to do and yeah. it it takes time to learn that you have to know that that tool is no longer useful in the current context. And it's not to like shame or like belittle the tool because that was really useful in keeping you alive at the time. But it's about knowing that there is better options available and that, like you said, Mm -hmm. sometimes the old tools start to sabotage new possibilities when we keep using them. Yeah, like if you're trying to use an old worn-out hammer for every house improvement, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you're probably going to run into some issues. So it's kind of nice to have a toolbox full of other things that include a screwdriver, for example, and a saw and a drill (laughs) Um, so that you're able to deal with these situations in new and different ways that might be and usually are more helpful. Yeah, I do. One of my quotes is about the foreboding joy. So maybe I'll read that. Yeah. And then I have like a little how I've learned to cope with my bad coping mechanism story. (laughs) Coping with my coping. (laughs) The Molly Fox story. (laughs) (laughs) Coping with my coping. And then I find a new coping mechanism to cope with those coping mechanisms. Anyway, we're having lots of fun. (laughs) So Brene is talking about how she uses foreboding joy, which is, as Kate described, that feeling of when you have like all that love well up in you 
over something, you immediately start to picture the worst possible scenario as if you're preparing yourself for it. And she says they were in a car in the car on like a family vacation and they were having fun and making jokes. And she says, I started welling up with joy. And in the split second that vulnerability, Joy's constant companion hit me, I shuddered, recalling an image from the news that showed an overturned SUV on I-10 and two empty car seats lying on the ground next to the truck. My laughter turned to panic and I remember blurting out, slow down, Steve. He looked at me with a puzzled expression and said, we're stopped. (laughs) That story just like hit me so hard because when I'm in that moment where I felt so much love for something, it it happens with my dog a lot where I will, if I'm feeling, yeah, especially lonely or whatever at night, I'll often like reach out to touch the dog just to like remind myself that like, you're not actually alone. There's something physically here with you. And my brain usually immediately goes, but he's going to die someday. (laughs) And it's like, okay, I really didn't need that. Shut up, me. (laughs) I'm trying to be happy. (laughs) Excuse me. I'm already feeling that. (laughs) But I will, if it's like, if I'm in a rough spot, often that will be like a roller coaster down into, for five minutes, I'll just be living in the future of when my dog dies and what I'm going to do and how I'm going to survive that. And before you know it, you're like sobbing and it's like, hey, you didn't even need to do it. You didn't need to do it. Yeah. Yes. I had also pulled a quote that was pretty similar. Uh, she writes, um, softening into the joyful moments of our lives requires vulnerability. If, like me, you've ever stood over your children and thought to yourself, I love you so much I can barely breathe, and then that the exact moment have been flooded with images of something terrible happening to your child, know that you're not crazy, nor are you alone. About 80% of the parents I've interviewed acknowledged having that experience. The same percentage holds true for the thousands of parents I've spoken to and worked with over the years. Why? What are we doing and why on earth are we doing it? Once we make the connection between vulnerability and joy, the answer is pretty straightforward. We're trying to beat vulnerability to the punch. And I am extremely guilty of doing this. I know that it's definitely something that I do with, you know, my husband and like, Mm -hmm. we're having a a lovely, perfect, wonderful day. And (laughs) then I have this terrible image of him being gone and ripped from my life. Or, um, you know, I tell my dog, I love him about 80 times a day, every time he walks in a room and (laughs) occasionally he'll be like sleeping and just looking so angelic and perfect because he is in fact a perfect dog. Yeah. Perfect baby angel. (laughs) And I'll have a, you know, that terrible feeling hits you of like, this won't last forever. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. We have to experience the terribleness now. And it's like, wait, no, we don't. No, we don't. Like softening into vulnerability and by extension joy, Mm -hmm. I think really is a skill you need to learn. Um, And at least it is for me. And one that Mm -hmm. I have really gotten better at as I've gotten older. But I don't think that that tendency and that kind of knee-jerk reaction will ever completely go away. Uh, I I don't think so for me either. Yeah. But the thing I really enjoyed about this section was – how she would explain basically here's the problem that the thing that we keep doing and here's the way people have found like a strategy that they use to get out of that mind trap and the one that spoke to me the most was how 
people were talking about just staying in the moment of the joy and really soaking it in as much as possible. Yeah. And I have, I've kind of developed these two rituals with my dog where I, there's like two moments that will like trigger the thought to like really just spend my time with him and focus it. And the first is like when we're on a walk, he really loves to roll in the grass. He's very, dramatic about it and he has to like (laughs) he like swims his way into the grass and then he kicks himself in the face with his feet the whole time it's so hilarious and he'll do it like seven times a walk (laughs) I I never make him stop because I'm always just like whenever he does it it's like a reminder to me to just like stand still and watch him exist yeah and the other is like any time that I'm feeding him something off a spoon like peanut butter which is a very common experience in our in our house (laughs) i will just like kneel right down so i'm right in front of his face and i will just watch him the whole time Mm -hmm. because it's like such a slow process you know it's like they've gotten everything off the spoon but they're gonna keep going (laughs) and i just use it as this perfect moment to just be like yeah this is this is living you are you are alive and you're with the thing you love the most and just stay in that moment and i feel like I know when the bad thing does happen, I won't have the regret of like, I should have paid more attention. Like, no, I soaked it up every second that I could. And I, that's the best I can do. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that brings to mind two things. The first is that the other way of removing yourself from a vulnerable situation is disengagement. So to Mm. me, the way to really soften into that joy and vulnerability is to be so engaged in that moment. And I think that that's exactly what you're describing. And I really love that. I also think it reminds me that I used to have this, I think a significant more in, in my train of thought, or I used to do this a lot more before I had experienced any loss or grief. Mm -hmm. And now that I'm older in my life and I have, I look back and I think, yeah, whatever you were doing didn't prepare you a goddamn bit. (laughs) I don't know what you thought you were doing, (laughs) but girl, it wasn't working. So, you know, it's just this recognition that ultimately, of course, nothing lasts forever and bad things will inevitably happen. But the truth is there's absolutely no way you can actually prepare yourself for that. Mm -hmm. And while that's terrifying and it is the acceptance of a lack Mm -hmm. of complete control, It's also a little bit freeing in knowing that you can stop doing that and kind of let go of the foreboding joy because ultimately you're not preparing yourself because no matter what, you'll be blindsided by whatever Mm -hmm. the grief or loss brings. Yeah. And what I feel like I've learned from the moments that I felt the most grief in my life is the fact that I, I'm surviving it, so it means I can survive it again. So another strategy I use when I'm imagining the worst thing, it's to remind myself, like, you you really do know how to do this. You have learned to survive grief. And so when it comes again, which it will, you will know how to get through it. Mm-hmm. And it's weird. It's like the only thing that prepares you for grief is grief itself. Yeah. And then once you go through it, you realize like, well, this is just as bad as I feared, but now I know how to do it. <laughs> this is way worse than I feared, but yeah, now I have the real. skills, I suppose, to deal with it. Yeah. Okay. So I I have another quote about her definition of love. This one struck me 
as really significant in my own life. And I found it to be really a great definition. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm just going to read the end where she talks about what kills love, essentially. She says, shame, blame, disrespect, betrayal, and the withholding of affection damage the roots from which love grows. Love can only survive these injuries if they are acknowledged, healed, and rare. And the part about that that stood out the most to me was the word rare. In many of my experiences where I felt wounded really significantly in loving relationships, the the ones that have survived those wounds were ones where those wounds were rare. And I've had relationships where those wounding experiences were not rare. And even though the person apologized and I think wanted to do better and, and maybe at times even attempted to do better, it couldn't make up for the fact that it had happened too many times for me to recover from. And there wasn't like enough space in between the wounds. And then ultimately it was like, even if you never wounded me again, it's already dead. This has already died. I can't get it back. So that, I don't, I don't know that I've heard that definition of love that way before, where it's really called out that not only do wounds need to be not, <laughs> like, mortal, they also <laughs> need to be infrequent. Otherwise, it can't be viable. And that's not because the person wasn't willing to forgive you. It's because that is not tenable for anyone. Yeah. I think one of the things she talks about that's related to this is not only is vulnerability important, but so are boundaries. And Mm -hmm. I think that's a really vital part of like kind of the other side of the coin of Mm -hmm. vulnerability is that you need to be able to say, I'm no longer willing to be vulnerable with you anymore. And to be able to make that decision because you acknowledge that you are hurting yourself by being vulnerable with them and that it is a an emotional strain on you to be vulnerable with them after they have repeatedly disrespect your vulnerability and caused that pain is a really important part of that, right? Because I think if you have too many relationships in which you're always putting your vulnerability out there and it's being received poorly then you're unwilling to be vulnerable with anyone. You get to a certain point where you're just like, well, I don't want to be vulnerable with anyone because every time I do it, I've been shown that it's not received well. And so I think the boundary part of that is vital. You are choosing to protect your own sanctity and integrity of your vulnerability Mm -hmm. by not sharing it with people who have historically not treated it the way that it should be yeah i completely agree and i think one of the things that i like so much about this quote is the way it cites that responsibility of the other party and yourself that not only do we have a responsibility to be aware of when someone is crossing our boundaries and wounding us that person has a responsibility to do everything they can to keep that wound infrequent or there's it's not a I just get to be who I am and do whatever I want and then apologize for it and it's fine it's you have a responsibility to prevent that from happening in the first place Mm -hmm. um otherwise 
you can't expect it to survive long term. Yeah. It's like the difference between someone coming up and slicing your arm open with a knife versus cutting it off. It's like, <laughs> yeah, okay, if you, if you, uh, you know, slice into somebody's arm and then you give it time to heal, mm-hmm. then, okay, you can kind of get back to the way things were. But if you keep cutting in the same spot every time until the arm falls off, then mm-hmm. there's really not that much more that you can do to repair it. So, Yeah. That was a really gross analogy. <laughs> That's okay. No, I I used a very similar analogy with a person once when I was trying to explain that experience and that they were wanting me to be able to like get over it and move on. And I was like, you keep talking about it like I just broke my leg, but my leg has been cut off and you're asking me to just like keep walking like normal. Like, mm, yeah. no, it won't heal. It's gone. It's gone. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's gone. It is <laughs> over <laughs> now. Yeah. It was. Ugh. So I think that's a, a very good, I think most people who are in the situation eventually stumble into the severed limb metaphor because it's quite. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway. Uh, so I have a quick quote that I wanted to talk about uh, as a, small critique of this book actually mm-hmm. and it's in the section where she's talking about this own uh, armor of vulnerability mm-hmm. and the ways that we avoid dealing with vulnerability and specifically in this section she's talking about numbing which as mm-hmm. we talked about earlier is using other things in order to avoid feeling vulnerable and just to numb that vulnerability in ourselves So she writes, when I looked at the data, my primary question was, what are we numbing and why? Americans today are more debt-ridden, obese, medicated, and addicted than we ever have been. For the first time in history, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has announced that automobile accidents are are now the second leading cause of accidental death in the United States. The leading cause? Drug overdoses. In fact, more people die from prescription drug overdoses than from heroin, cocaine, and methamphetamine drug use combined. Even more alarming is the estimate that less than 5% of those who died from prescription drug overdoses obtained their drugs from the folks we normally think of as street corner drug dealers. The dealers today are more likely to be parents, relatives, friends, and physicians. Clearly, there's a problem. We're desperate to feel less or more of something, to make something go away, or to have more of something else. So I don't disagree with most of what she says in this paragraph, but I disagree with the conclusion that the only reason that Americans today are more debt-ridden, obese, medicated, and addicted than we ever have been is because we are numbing things. Because I think that excuses the structural issues in our society, including the entire opioid crisis, and that it is a direct result of our for-profit pharmaceutical industry in the United States, uh, as well as uh, the debt-ridden aspect of this as well, that things have gotten more expensive and most Americans have been slowly pushed out of the middle class. So there's a lot more structural issues going on here than people just individually not being willing to be vulnerable. And I think she doesn't clearly explain that. That's kind of the end of her point there. And I really wish that she would have at least acknowledged how complicated these issues are on a structural uh, standpoint. And again, she wrote this in 2011. So perhaps that is more a product of the time that she was writing in. And if she had written it now, there would have been more of an acknowledgement of that. 
But I do think that it's dangerous to appoint all of these things to individual responsibility because Mm -hmm. I don't think that that's accurate. Yeah, I agree. And I think this is an instance where she's not really relying on her data anymore. She's drawing Mm -hmm. a conclusion. She's citing causation versus correlation. And she's not doing the work that she does in a lot of the rest of the book where she's drawing conclusions from her data and her research. It's more that she's extrapolating out to the rest of other structural problems. So I agree. I really don't like that in that section as well, she cites overeating as another numbing behavior, Mm -hmm. which I agree that we do use food as all humans do to like comfort. Um, But I think equating obesity with that as a person trying to numb themselves is really dangerous and unfair. So I, I think there is some over oversimplification that she does occasionally in a very outdated feeling way. Yeah, I think so too. And the thing is, I I don't need her to do that because I feel like mm-hmm. had she just stuck to talking about individually our vulnerability on this mm-hmm. level, it would have been more effective for me. But when mm-hmm. she takes it that one step further and says, and also vulnerability is the reason for everything in our society being wrong. I'm yeah. like, okay, but I'm not sure that you fully backed that up with your own research. And so that feels less effective to me. Yeah. And maybe what she means is just like clearly vulnerability plays a role in all these other areas, which Mm -hmm. I would agree with, but that's not really how she frames it. She frames it as the cause. Mm -hmm. And that's really a leap to make based on what we know of systems and their pitfalls. Yeah. And their histories, frankly. Uh, So yeah, that was kind of my little critique. I also have a nitpicky critique, which is that she often writes her interactions with different people throughout the book and i think it's hilarious to me that everyone she interacts with also seems to talk like a middle-aged white woman which is pretty interesting (laughs) even Um, like her eight-year-old yeah exactly i'm like okay i i appreciate and respect that this is certainly the sentiment of that conversation but they didn't say that there's no way your eight-year-old used those exact terms or like this random 20-year-old man used those exact terms like i don't believe that yes i i i had a slightly similar critique where it was like i resonate more i resonate less with like earnesty and more with a little bit of your reverence and like tongue-in-cheek which she, I think, actively avoids because as she talks about in a part of her book, she views coolness and that front of like, I'm too cool for that as another way of avoiding vulnerability. So she really leans into, no, I'm I'm very uncool and I'm not ashamed of that, which I think is really great. But some of the metaphors and the like imagery she uses to me feels a little too cutesy and dorky. And it's like... <laughs> It's hard for me to get past that when she's using, like, Harry Potter metaphors or she's talking about, like, the really atrocious voices that we talk to ourselves in as gremlins. Where Mm -hmm. I'm like, girl, that is not how I view that experience. Well, I felt the same way because I was like... Yeah, no, I get it. You don't need to come up with, like, an eighth grade metaphor for me. I I understand what you're saying. I don't think we need to do all of this. It it felt, like, repetitive to me, too, Mm -hmm. in that sense Mm -hmm. of coming up with these analogies. And I was like, 
Yeah, no, I, I'm understanding what you're writing. It's clear enough. I don't need yeah. you to do all of that stuff. <laughs> yeah, but I, I think based on her personality, as she describes it in the book, like she describes moments where she'll be alone and she'll like talk out loud to a painting she has or whatever. Yeah, and it's yeah. like, well, okay, I think that's just your thing. Like that yeah, you're yeah, just kind sure. of more like... Very earnest. Earnest, yeah, yeah which is... Uh, for me, a cool person, really not okay. <laughs> As a certified cool, I would like to tell you that that is not how I operate. <laughs> uh, it's so funny. I have obviously like trauma around being called a dork. So now I'm like, no, no, I'm always cool 100% of the time. <laughs> and in like, in actuality, I'm like one of the most earnest and embarrassing people I've ever met. Oh, I'm super embarrassing. I like to think of it as authenticity rather than True. dorkiness. I I don't talk to paintings as she is, as you say, she is uh, inclined to do. But obviously we all have our quirky behaviors. And I do appreciate that this is coming from a place of authenticity and that this is clearly just who she is. I don't think she's yeah. putting on a front to make no, this more accessible. I but I also, it just wasn't necessary for me. I was like, no, I, I get yeah. what you're saying. We don't need four more pages of you talking about gremlins. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, she would often do a thing like, you remember the gremlins? And it's like, yeah. Renee, I <laughs> yes, I'm not a dog with a memory of five <laughs> seconds. Yes, I remember the last chapter. Murph looks up from the bed and he's like, yeah, I remember <laughs> he's them, like, Even <laughs> I remember it, okay? Now where's my spoon of peanut butter? <laughs> uh, shall I ask you my question? Yeah, that would be great. Okay. So we've covered the section in her book where she talks about the vulnerability armory. And you read out the three tactics that she says we all at some point use to help shield us from vulnerability. So I was curious which one of those, the numbing perfectionism or foreboding joy, resonated with you the most or that you see yourself using the most? Mm, Yeah, I think definitely the foreboding joy one as an adult. And again, Mm. I've tried to get better at this, but I think it'll always be uh, kind of knee-jerk reaction to a vulnerability feeling um less so in small moments of vulnerability and more so in in really big moments i think my natural proclivity would have been to the perfectionism one and when i was younger i do think that that hit me pretty hard like when i was a middle schooler and high schooler i think that the perfectionism aspect of if I just do everything right, I won't have to feel ashamed, was very much a part of my MO. (laughs) I I can now recognize it in moments where I would be really sarcastic about things, but not be the person to make a joke. Of like, I don't want to be the person to put myself out there, but I will Mm. make fun of someone else kind of thing, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, And like of that being perfectionism, because if you never put your creations out there, you don't have to hear bad feedback about them. And, totally. uh, you know, just different things like that I can recognize in myself. But I think that my mom knew that about me, that that was my natural proclivity to hide behind perfectionism and worked very hard <laughs> to train those thoughts out of me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I mm-hmm. think I, I 
have her to thank for it not overrunning my life as an adult. And slowly as I've gotten older, I think it's also become less and less so as I've realized that perfectionism is a hilarious control tactic that we think we have. And boy, do we not. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Perfectionism to me is very, I feel the urge very frequently, especially in regards to social media. Like if I see enough images of someone's house looking perfect, I feel that like deep need to like make it all look perfect. But I, I am aware enough of the fact that none of that is real and everyone lives in their house and things get put out of place and that people use their stuff and dogs shed on the floor and that's just life. And no, like they just arranged their house and took a photo and then it got messy again. Like this is all a lie. So I'm aware enough of that, that I often like do not engage with that urge, Mm -hmm. but the urge is still there. And it's very interesting to me that I can know very well that, cleaning up my entire house will not actually make me feel more validated as a person or more successful or whatever. Mm-hmm. And yet I still want to do it in an attempt to control my fears that I'm not enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and I think in terms of the numbing, the one that she doesn't talk about, but that I'm going to like insert for her is humor. Cause oh, I think girl. there are so many times where I've evaded vulnerability by like being Mm self-deprecating and she doesn't talk about humor as an evasion tactic. She talks about it as a coping mechanism, which of course it can be both. But I think for me, the numbing part is probably through like self-deprecating humor of again, like Mm -hmm. if I say it first, then I don't have to hear somebody else say it kind of thing. Yeah. I, I use humor as like a deflection tactic for when it's like a pressure release valve where I need the energy in the room to come down or to stop being like earnest. Cause obviously I cannot take that, which is embarrassing, <laughs> but it, yeah, if other people are being too vulnerable in what I perceive as too vulnerable and it's making me feel like out of control and anxious, I will often use humor to diffuse that feeling for myself and not in a way where I'm like making fun of them. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just like, I can see the way, I will be unwilling to engage in the vulnerability. And in order to avoid acknowledging that, I will just make a joke. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, classic, classic move. But But like, if you walk into any middle school classroom, that's what's going on all of the time. You know, like, so to me, that I think is a huge part of it that I was surprised she just, I don't know, didn't really talk about in that way. Yeah, I I think humor can definitely become... I I notice myself doing it with in dating a lot too, where it's like, I'm very funny and I can rely on that. And I will lean into that more than I will lean into just being more vulnerable about like what I want in a relationship or what I'm looking for or what I do and don't like. Yeah. If I do say it, I usually have to couch it in a joke and it's like, Hey buddy, <laughs> you can just say it. Like you can, you or if I say something really, get a joke. <laughs> yeah. Like if I'm yeah. texting someone and I say something, like if I give them a nice compliment and I'm being a little bit like more, 
like vulnerable in that way where it's like, yeah, hey, I like you. I'm always going to follow it up with like, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, girl, I just like you, leave it on the table. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, always, it's always the one-two punch. And it's not usually like a joke that takes it back. It's just like, oh, also there's a joke in case that made you uncomfortable and scared. Don't worry, I'm funny still. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, God Don't damn. worry, I'm not taking my own needs very seriously. <laughs> yeah, so you don't literally. It's like, yeah, you don't have to take me seriously either in case you didn't like it. But if you did, you can. But don't worry if you didn't. It's <laughs> But like, like no pressure, but like pressure. <laughs> <laughs> but should we get married tomorrow? <laughs> like, <laughs> just kidding, haha. <laughs> uh, but I've also purchased a matching grave plot for us, so please don't back out on me now. <laughs> How do you feel about water beds? <laughs> oh my god all right well i guess i can uh ask you my question yes so uh so as mentioned renee brown is a researcher and hosts workshops to gather her qualitative data from participants Mm -hmm. and i really loved hearing the results of those throughout the book it was great to hear a lot of different perspectives on what vulnerability Mm -hmm. is how shame Mm -hmm. feels all of that And she often started her workshops by asking participants to fill in the blank on statements like vulnerability is blank. Shame feels like blank. So my question for you is what would you say you were taught that vulnerability is? Like if you were to fill out vulnerability is at the age of like 13, what would you have said? Mm, Okay. At 13... Mine probably would have been like, vulnerability is wearing a swimsuit at the age of 13. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. If, I'm, I'm trying to like get back into my 13-year-old body. I, well, it was, doesn't have to be 13. But yeah. what I was taught that was, was that vulnerability is weakness. So that mm-hmm. is the thing that was always like instilled in me as a young person. And then as an adult, I've like been like, wait, no, actually, it's not. Um, yeah. So I'm just curious, like, what would it have been when you were younger and what would you say it is now? I think it was and still is vulnerability is panic. Mm. Like when I feel myself at that edge of like you are going to say a thing or whatever and you can't take this back and like we're about to go down this. Oh my God. Even if I know it's the right thing, Mm -hmm. it, there is, it's out of, you're out of control. You can't control how the person reacts or if you will regret it later or whatever. And it's even when I was younger, I knew like, this is, you cannot take this back once this happens. Mm -hmm. And that sense of knowing that like, I really need you to love me and you might not makes me feel panicked. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. I think there were a lot of responses that were similar in, in the same sentiment of, you know, mm-hmm. vulnerability is it's terror. <laughs> yeah. It's terror is, is really fucking scary mm-hmm. is, um, there were a few that were like, vulnerability is asking for a raise. Vulnerability is yeah. initiating sex with sex. my wife. Yeah. Uh, it's, you it's, know, oh, uh, all of these different things. And so I just found that to be really fascinating. And I loved reading all of those mm-hmm. from other people of like, yeah, what what do we as a group of people think vulnerability is and how mm-hmm. does that impact us? Yeah, I really liked how some people chose a specific scenario mm-hmm. or action yeah. and other people were like a general feeling. Yeah. Yeah, that it it was really good. I loved seeing the responses when she put 
participant quotes and stuff. That me was too. one of my favorite parts of the book. Yeah, me too. Well, do you have a rating for this book? Yes, I do. So when I was trying to think of a rating system, the I settled on the moments in my life when I feel the most vulnerable, like I'm most prone to it. Mm -hmm. And the best way I can sum it up is with goodbyes. Mm -hmm. So anytime I see my family and then I leave in that moment of like, bye, leaving, etc. That is when I experience the most like, that's the last time I'm ever going to see them. Like, mm -hmm. they're going to die. I'm going to die. Like this foreboding joy thing happens to me. Same with the dog. Like I, I'm on a trip right now to see my family and my dog is being babysat by someone. And when I left, it was like choking back tears. Like it was, I hate that moment of mm -hmm. like knowing that this is out of my hands and I might not have control over seeing this person or thing ever again. <laughs> so I chose a, my rating system is goodbyes. So I picked four out of five goodbyes. Mm. This book was really good. And I love the lessons that she has and some of the way she frames things. And as we've already discussed, we have a few critiques that kind of kept it from being the fullest experience it could be, but it was great. Yeah. I had two rating systems and one is super earnest. So I'm going to say it oh just to God. irritate okay. you. I so love it. Yes. I rated it. I, I just said goodbyes. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm like, I'm so cool. Wait, goodbye. I, <laughs> <be terrified. laughs> I have two. So one is... This is the earnest one. Four out of five trust falls. Uh, <laughs> I love it. Um, but the other one was a little bit more like yours, which was mm -hmm. uh, four out of five knots. Uh, mm. So I did that because I think when I feel vulnerable, I'll get a knot in my stomach. Mm. But I also view knots as being a symbol for trust and how vulnerability mm. allows us to be bound with one another. So I feel yeah. like it works on multiple levels. Yeah, that's uh, good. So, yes, I also rated it four out of five. Again, I had mm -hmm. some small critiques, but they're mostly nitpicky. Mm -hmm. I didn't find this to be a super groundbreaking book, but I also think mm -hmm. that's because I'm reading it a decade after she wrote it. Yeah. And I think had I read it when it first came out and her ideas hadn't permeated the culture mm -hmm. yet, mm -hmm. I would have found it much more groundbreaking than I find it now after she's mm -hmm. written five books and she has two podcasts and her ideas are everywhere. Yeah, I agree. And the for me, the therapy aspect of it made it so that like many of the lessons she teaches in this book are things that I have worked on and practiced. Mm -hmm. But it, it was really nice to read about the communal experience we're all having that you see revealed through her participant data yeah i agree i think even just the act of reading this book felt like a connection mm -hmm. which is nice yeah. because i think that that's what a part of what she was going for i assume yeah definitely do you have a pop culture pairing i do and it is weird <laughs> okay so i have to preface this by saying i am not a self-help person because i and too obstinate and I do not yes. like to be told what to do and I like to get my own timeline and I, I don't want your advice shut up same <laughs> so, I feel the exact same <laughs> so I am very much not a self-help person uh, I find the sociological aspect of things to be really fascinating mm -hmm. of like how do we connect with each other and uh, what does it mean to be in a society where in a culture where we're interacting with one another and we're relying on one another 
So I do like that aspect of it, which I think is why I liked this book. But as yeah. far as self-help goes, I'm like, mm, nope, no, get thanks. your opinions out of here. I didn't ask. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, so I did not go with something that's self-helpy cool. uh, for obvious reasons that I just explained. But my recommendation is for an animated adult show called Big Mouth on Netflix. Ooh, yeah. Which is created by Nick Kroll. I love and adore him. I think he's hilarious. And it also stars uh, John Mulaney and mm-hmm. Jenny Slate uh, up until recently and many, many other people. Uh, Jason Manzoukas, who is hilarious as well. Mm. It has an all-star cast, uh, but it is about a group of friends in middle school going through puberty. Mm-hmm. And yes, because it is a Nick Kroll venture, there are a lot of jacking off jokes. There's totally. a lot of like bathroom humor, etc. Mm-hmm. So if that turns you off, you're probably not going to like it. However, they do a really, really clever job of animating feelings so Mm. there's a depression kitty there is an anxiety mosquito there is a shame wizard uh, and there is a hormone monster oh i love it and all of them are hilarious obviously but the manifestation of these feelings as actual uh, sentient beings Mm -hmm. i found to be so incredibly clever and really on the nose and like just so accurate. So I really love that show and that's what I would recommend. I I think that's a great pick especially because what is that's one of the most vulnerable times in all of our lives is mm, that like yeah. 10 to 13 like oh agony time. <laughs> <laughs> just the worst. <laughs> yeah. I my pick is actually fairly similar. <clears throat> I went with a movie. It's called Philomena. And it's on Netflix right now. It's about a an Irish woman who, when she was a teenager, got pregnant out of wedlock. And it's based on a true story. She went to stay at not a convent, but it's like a house where nuns will help like wayward women or whatever. And they took they take the women's babies and they put them up for adoption against their will. And so Ooh, the, her baby was adopted by people in the States and as a older woman she's seeking out her son and mm. she links up with a journalist who then helps her go to the states and they i won't tell you how it ends but it's a, a beautiful story and it involves a lot of family vulnerability and that way that like really gets to me mm-hmm. and the reason i picked it was because one of the ways that i feel able to practice vulnerability is by watching other people practice it or experiencing it in a way that's like removed from myself but that I'm still like oh yeah there are like good outcomes here or there's value even though it didn't turn out the way I wanted or they wanted the experience was really good and healing and so sometimes it just helps to watch someone else do that and experience it a little bit from afar before you like jump in in your own way yeah, absolutely. I think yeah. that's a really good way of uh, relearning that vulnerability can be a good thing. Yeah, and that it's possible and that it's something that you have to practice. And maybe this is the first small step is just watching. I, I avoid romance movies because they make me feel too like desperate and filled with longing. <laughs> and this is not a romance, but it's if you are having a similar experience with like 
I, I have to avoid vulnerability at all costs. Like maybe watching a movie where that is part of the storyline helps. Mm-hmm. Although I'm like, I won't watch romance, so I won't take my own advice, but <laughs> cool if you take mine. <laughs> I do not want anyone telling me what to do. I do yeah. not want to actually experience You can keep yourself help. <laughs> totally. yeah. Back to the jokes, folks. <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, well, I... I'm going to thank you for being vulnerable okay. on this podcast with me. What if I start sobbing right now? I weep at the end. And I wept. Uh, uh, thank you, too. This was a great conversation. Yeah. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, I digress. Join us next time for more of our bullshit. Bullshit. <laughs>